Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. I'm continuing our series entitled Unbeatable Hope, and I'm actually starting this week a three-part sermon, okay? And the title of this three-part sermon is How Hope Grows. How Hope Grows. What an apropos topic, especially after praying a prayer like that. I know there are many that are watching this online that are in this room right now who maybe feel hopeless. Whether for one reason or another, you just feel like hope is lost. And here's what you need to be reminded of by your God, not just me. Not only do you need hope, but the hope you have can grow, and it needs to grow, because we live in a fallen world where it's really easy to get hopeless really fast. Hope is an essential part of navigating this fallen world called Earth. Now, the first part of this three-part sermon called How Hope Grows is huge. And if you're taking notes, and and you, you can write this down if it's not on your notes, here's the subtitle of part one, understanding what God is like. The first step and the hope you have growing so that you can navigate anything in this life, no matter how dark, bad, or difficult, is that you understand what God is like. Now, here's the problem with that. Too many people think that God is whatever they think he's like. In other words, if they think God is stingy, well, then God is stingy. If they think God is mad, then God is mad. If they think God is mean and vindictive, then he's mean and vindictive, okay? This is absolutely incorrect. The best source for understanding what God is actually like is God himself, not man, okay? And here's, here's, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. This is an important one-liner in this message. When we talk about what God is like, I personally believe the number one thing every human must know about God is he is Father. God is Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 says, There is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. Now, what you need to understand about this is God is extremely serious about being father, okay? I mean, seriously serious about it. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is speaking, and I'll give you the context. He's speaking to the disciples, and he says, hey, don't let anybody call you teacher, because there's only one teacher. Don't let anybody call you Lord, there's only one Lord. And sandwiched in between that, like the filling between two Oreos, which is the best part, Jesus says... And don't you call anyone on the earth father. Now, two things. What Jesus is not saying is he's not saying don't call your biological father father. Okay? And some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul refers to himself as a spiritual father to those he's led to Christ with the gospel. Yes. Jesus is saying this. 
you're going to have spiritual fathers. Don't you dare call them father. Don't literally walk up to them and say father because you only have one real spiritual father, and that's your heavenly father. Okay? So Jesus paints this picture and says, this is serious stuff. God takes very seriously being the father of his children, all those who believe in Christ. Now, here's the, the great, I'll read Matthew 23, 9. It says, Jesus says, and don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. Okay? Now, I'm making it up. This is what Jesus said. Now, you have to understand that not only is God serious about being father, he's serious about how you call him father. If you open up to Galatians chapter 4, let's read together, starting in verse 4, at what scripture tells us about this very thing. Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Galatians 4 verse 4 says, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. Speaking of Jesus. God sent Jesus to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law. Slaves to sin. That was all of us before Christ. So that, in other words, God's motive for sending Jesus was so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. This word Abba literally means daddy. Now, many of us, when we think about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we think about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which is absolutely correct, okay? But did you know that one of the Holy Spirit's highest job responsibilities is to come inside every believer and prompt them that as they look in the direction of the God of the universe, the Holy Spirit prompts you in your heart to not just go, oh God, but to say, Daddy, Daddy, this is one of the highest responsibilities the Holy Spirit has been given, is to prompt you to call out to God as Daddy. Now, one of the ways you know you've gotten a revelation about what God is like is in how you approach him. If you approach him formally as father, you need to get a better revelation about what God is like. But if you approach him intimately as daddy, you're on a pretty good track to understanding what God is like because God is father. Now, here's the really big question. What kind of father is he? And before I answer that question and we answer it together, I just want to say something. And I've picked this up in the last two services and I felt like the Lord gave me a heads up that this is what it was going to be like, so it's not a surprise. Okay? I feel like I've been preaching against a wall this weekend. All right? That I'm talking about how awesome your daddy is. And here's what I'm getting from everybody. Hmm. Hmm. I'm literally handing you a $10 million check, and you're going, hmm, hmm. Okay, note to self, if, if when I proposed to my wife and just went down this incredible long road and this awesomely anointed spiel, and she went, hmm, I might have gotten up and walked out of the room. Okay, and here's why most people might be tempted to respond when they hear about the awesomeness of their heavenly father with, hmm, here's why they would do it. Because something has happened to them 
either in their relationship with their earthly father or with their heavenly father that has caused them to see God in a way that is not accurate. So here's what I want you to do before we answer the question, what kind of daddy is your father, your heavenly father? Before we answer it, here's what I need you to do. If you feel like you've had a bad earthly father, okay, I need you to do something for me. If you have a father who's been in a bad place for maybe a really long time and you would say, I grew up with a bad dad, I've got a bad dad, okay? Here's what I'd ask you to do. Don't put that on God. Don't put that on God. He is not a man like your earthly father. He is not bad. He is altogether good, so good he is perfect. So don't put bad on a good God, okay? On the other side of the equation, if you've grown up with an amazing dad, all right, note to self, do your earthly father a favor and don't put him into a comparison contest with the perfect daddy because your daddy can't even come close to living up to it. And then the third group, if you're in a situation or a season right now where you're a little frustrated with your heavenly father because things haven't gone the way you expected, don't put the difficulty of your present situation on your daddy. He is with you in it. He is not mad at you and making you go through it. So don't look at him and say, I am mad at you because you're making me go through this. Okay? We're going to walk through what kind of daddy your heavenly father is. Don't put your baggage on your daddy in such a way that it would cause you to see him in an incorrect way. Can you make that promise to me? Okay, let's jump into it. First answer to the question, what kind of father is God? First answer, he's a loving father. God is a loving daddy. Now, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says that God is love. And here's what that means. That his nature, his very essence is love. Now, to try and in some way explain that, it's kind of like someone who would say, I am African American, or I am Hispanic, or I am Asian, or me saying, I am white. What I'm talking about is not my identity. I'm talking about a part of my unchangeable nature. In 1 John 4, 7, God is saying, I am love. This is a part of my unchangeable nature, Preston. I am love. So here's what that means. Any conversation about real love has to involve God because God is love. Go even further. Any conversation about God has to involve love because God is love. Now, when we talk about this, there's a question that comes to mind. What does his love look like? If God is a loving daddy, what does this love look like? And there's so many different places that we could go in scripture. Uh, if you want some homework, go read Psalm 139 this week. A beautifully extravagant picture of the way God sees his children. And if you're in a tough place, go read that this week. But I want to take you, flip over to Romans chapter 8 if you put a marker there. I want to show you a couple of verses that are such a wonderfully strong picture of God's love for every one of his children. Now, before we read this, here's what you need to remember. That God, let's go to, 1 John, uh, to John 3.16, the most quoted verse of all time. For God so loved the world. Now, here's what you have to know. God loved the world even while we were sinners. Okay? And he proved that, Scripture says, in sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Okay? So God loves the entire world. But when we become his children, that love gets even stronger. 
Now, here's one of my pet peeves about the church over the years, that it's almost seemed like this club of God loves us and not you if you don't know Jesus. No, no, no. The Bible is clear. For God so loved the entire world of sinners that he gave his only son. Okay? But imagine this. That's a massive love. When we become his children, he loves us even more. But let's, let's just take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse, starting in verse 38, at what this love for his children looks like. It says this, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Everybody say nothing. That was so weak, it's not even funny. That did not sound like you believe it. Let me read it again. And I am convinced that nothing, everybody say nothing, nothing. can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing, everybody say nothing. Nothing Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is awesome news. It's okay to get a little excited about that. And I, I, don't, I don't mean to stir up a theological hornet's nest, okay? I promise I'm not trying to do that. Because you might be on the other side of the aisle theologically from me, and it's okay, we can agree to disagree on this, right? But I personally believe theologically that you can't lose your salvation, okay? And Romans 8, verses 38 and 39 are two of the biggest reasons why I believe that, okay? Because if, if it, he can just take it away, I don't understand his love the way Scripture And I'm not trying to stir up a hornet's nest. If you want to keep believing that you can lose your salvation and fall asleep at night, freaked out that you might have done something to lose your salvation, you just keep having sleepless nights, okay? I know it's not fair that I have a mic and you don't, but that's just the rules. You know my heart. I'm not trying to poke. I'm just trying to prove a point that your daddy is so loving that it's beyond anything we can wrap our minds around, okay? And we just read, this is what God says. He says, Preston, there are gonna be days where you make significant mistakes in your life and you're gonna think when the enemy comes and whispers that it's all over and he's gonna say that you're unlovable, that I, I can't love someone who's done what you just did and I am going on record in Romans 8, 38 and 39 that son, in that moment, I want you to know nothing, no thing can separate my love from you. Listen, that's not his love for me alone, that's his love for you too. I hope you get excited about that because there is nothing you can do to stop his love. That's what I'm talking about. Your daddy is a loving daddy. Here's the second thing. He's a generous father. He's a generous father. Problem with this, this one is too many people measure the generosity of God based on what they have or even more specifically what they don't have. 
they look around, their friends have more than they do, and they feel like they have so much lack, and so they begin to believe the lie that God is not generous. Okay, here's what you have to remember. Never, ever measure the generosity of your God by what you have. Measure the generosity of your God by what he's done and what he's doing, okay? You never forget that because if the enemy gets you to look at what you have and and to view God as generous or not generous based on that, don't do it. Now, here's the problem. Some of us have asked God for some things and he hasn't given them to us. And some of us might be a little frustrated with God that we're just waiting and he hasn't given it to us. If that's you, I want you to write these couple of things down. I wanna give you what I believe to be the top three reasons why you may have asked God for something, but he hasn't given it to you, okay? So if that's you, I want you to write these things down. Here's the first typical reason why. Number one, it's not good for you. God hasn't given it to you because something you asked for, you think it's good for you, he knows it's bad for you. And real love is never going to give something to the one they love that will crush them, kill them, or tear them down. So even if you think, now listen, you can always go take it. But if you're waiting for God to give it, one of the reasons why he may not be giving it is it's not good for you. Okay? Here's the second reason why. You're not ready for it. You're not ready for it. I've had this happen time and time again where I ask God for something. And, and it's not, you're bad, Preston. It's just, you're not ready. Son, if I gave this to you, you would collapse. So what you need to do, son, is if you really want what you're asking me for, you need to prepare to steward it. And right now, you're not ready to. And I'm too good of a daddy, son, to give you something that would take you out. You're just not ready for it. You don't have to take it personally. You just hear God saying, I want to give it to you. You just need to get ready for it. And then here's the third reason, and I think this is probably one of the, the, probably the one that is most often the reason. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. It can be a good thing and you can be in a good place, but it can be the wrong timing. And I don't understand God's timing. I never will on this side of heaven and neither will you. Don't take it personally. It's just not yet the right time. But while you're waiting, note to self, don't take it out on God that you don't have it yet. Do all you can do to prepare to steward it if and when God gives it to you, okay? But I want to show you, John 3.16, you all know this. I'm going to read it out of a different translation, the Kingdom New Testament, which is translated by Professor N.T. Wright, one of the best alive today. And, and since I've, I know you've heard this verse so many times, I just want you to hear it from a different translation than you normally would read. John 3.16 says, This you see is how much God loved the world. Enough to give his only special son. It's a beautiful way to say it. This is how much God loved the world. Enough to give. Your daddy is the most generous that ever will be. Now, how many of you would say, uh, I feel like I've got a pretty good revelation of the generosity of God. Would you just put your hand up? Let's put it up. It's not bragging, just, but I feel like I've got a good, good revelation of the generosity of God. Okay, there's actually a way to know. Okay, so you might say, oh yeah, I've got it. Well, you may not. You may just think you do. There's actually a way to know. Here's how you know you've gotten a revelation of the generosity of God and how you see everything you ask him for. Let me show this to you in scripture. 
Romans 8, verse 32, if you're still there in Romans 8, read it with me in your own Bible. Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't God also give us everything else? This is a very important verse of scripture in understanding the generosity of your daddy. Now think about what's being said here. Starting at the most expensive end of the ledger, Paul is saying, people, think about this. If your daddy gave you the single most expensive and extravagant gift in sending his son to die for you, don't you think he'll give you all the cheaper stuff too? You know you've gotten a revelation of the generosity of God when you see it that way. Now, let's illustrate this. Let's say I give my daughter, uh, who's 17, a $10 million check today. Okay, I need not tell you, this is not a true story, by the way. She was in, in the service last night. I had to really make sure that point was driven home. This is not a true story. Not going to be a true story, okay? But let's say I gave her a $10 million check. And she said, can I spend this however I want? And I say, yep, spend it however you want. She says, well, Daddy, I think this is like my inheritance, and so I'm going to invest it. And I'm not going to spend a dime of it. I'm going to store it up. Well, I'd be a proud dad, right? Let's say a week later, she comes to me and she says, Daddy, I need $5 for lunch money. I have two options in how to respond, right? One option is to go, what? Are you kidding me right now? I just wrote you a $10 million check and you have the guts to ask me for $5? Holmes, I should be asking you for $5. I could respond that way, right? Interestingly enough, That's how many of us see asking God for things, is that it's some huge ordeal and we should be sheepish and be afraid because he's already done so much. And I think there's another way to see it because I think he sees it differently. The second way I could respond to Riley is if I said this, hold on, five bucks? Like Riley, I just wrote you a check for 10 million and all I have to do is give you five bucks for lunch? I feel like I'm getting off scot-free this week. Here's 20. Go eat wherever you want. Okay, listen to me. You know you have gotten a revelation of the generosity of your God when you understand no matter how big your requests are to your heavenly father, they are merely like asking your daddy for pennies for lunch money because what he's already given you makes everything else you will ever ask him for pale in comparison. And your daddy wants you to come to him with every one of your needs, every one of them. And instead of feeling like, I just don't want to be needy, he's going, what do you want for lunch this week? What are we doing? Where do you want to eat? Five bucks. They're not doing five. Here's 20 bucks. Go eat wherever you want. Here's a hundred bucks some week. And you get it. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about God's heart of generosity for you. I was 15 years old and I asked God, think about this. I think I was a lunatic when I did this, but I said at 15, God, I'd like a girl and two boys in that order. At 15, I'm putting in my order for my kids. And I said, the reason I only want one girl, I don't want two girls, please don't give me two. (laughs) Love them, but it's actually not why you think. I said, God, you know how I am. I only want one because I want to be able to look that little girl in the eyes and say, I've never used these words with any other human being on this planet. God of the universe, would you give me just one girl? 
and two boys who will grow up in her shadow, who will learn how to treat a woman and fight for a woman that they love. And sure enough, years later, a girl and two boys. Does it always happen that way? No. And can I just admonish those of you who ask God for something and then resent it when he doesn't give it to you? If God would have given me three girls, well, I, would, I want to say I wouldn't have griped. I probably would have griped a little bit, but <laughs> no offense to the family of three girls. No, but I, I would have said, Lord, it's your will. It's okay. It's all right. You know better than I do. So I trust you. Whenever you give me what you give me, I trust you know better than I do. Okay? But listen, how does a 15-year-old boy go to his God and make that kind of a, a request? I'll tell you how. Because that little boy knows his daddy wants to pay for his lunch money for the rest of his life. Wants to give him the desires of heart. Go read Ephesians 3. Who has the power to do exceedingly abundantly all, above all you could ask for or imagine. I'm not talking about a divine slot machine. I'm talking about him reaching into your soul to the dreams he's put in your heart. We need to sit down with our heavenly daddy and pour those things out a little bit more. Instead of coming to him and going, uh, I really hesitate to ask this of you, God. Listen, he wrote the most expensive check in the history of humanity. Anything else you ask him for is cheap compared to that value. Are you tracking with me? Your daddy is a generous daddy. Here's the next thing. God is a totally obsessed always watching father. I've talked about this before, but I'll never stop talking about it because too many people don't understand this side of the God of the universe. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus says, what, what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your, what? Father. Not your God, your father. Intimate language. He says, not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your daddy knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered by the God of the universe. Mine's a little bit easier to count than yours, by the way. Think about this, how romantic that is. How does God know every hair in your head? You could go the theological route and say, well, God knows everything. I choose to go the romantic route. He counts every one of my hairs as they fall because he is so divinely obsessed with me and you that he never stops staring at me and you. Jesus says, all the hairs on your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Well, that's good news, right? What is Jesus saying? He's in essence saying, let's go all the way into the cheapest end of the spectrum. The two sparrows worth one coin. He says, one of those sparrows falls, and your father knows every single time because he's watching the smallest details of your life. He is a detail-concerned God. He knows every detail of your life, whether you think he does or not. And Jesus says, when a sparrow falls to the ground, your father knows. And how much more does your daddy love you than a bunch of sparrows? Okay? Your daddy is a totally obsessed, always watching father. Years ago, I was doing what's called a prophetic presbytery. And if you don't know what that is, uh, we'll have one here uh, probably in the next 12 months, our first one. And it's basically uh, a couple of ministers uh, come in to a church and, and they set themselves apart and fast before and pray just to hear God speak. And they know they're going to have some people that they give a word they feel like God has given. It's not freaky. It's not scary. It's just God speaking. And how many of you know God loves to talk? Anybody? Okay. And when God talks, it's not weird. All right? Weird people talk weird. 
God doesn't talk weird, okay? No offense if you're a weird person. Love you. Jesus died for you. Weird people talk weird, not God, okay? So I was there at this church, and, and I was one of the ministers, and so I was praying before. And in, in every service, there are a couple of candidates, and then we give what's called words in due season, which is just whatever God's saying to some people in the room. And before this particular service, it was couple number two, and so I knew uh, it was a husband and a wife, and, and I felt like God gave me a word for the wife. And the first words he says are, Pez dispenser. I was like, okay, listen, I, I know I had extra sugar in my cereal this morning, but that sounds way too Fruit Loopy, okay? Pez dispenser, you wanna extrapolate God? Like you wanna you want kinda build this out for me? And he, he gives me a picture of this woman in a very dark place at the end of her rope. And she feels like a Pez dispenser where she has nothing to give and yet everyone keeps taking from her like a Pez, just popping her head back and just taking whatever they want. And she's done with it and on the edge of being done with God. So I get up, I share the word like a wall, stoic, no response at all. Finished with the words, she goes and sits down with her husband in the front row of the senior pastor. We're moving to the next couple, and I see a man in his late 60s walking down the aisle to the front row, and he gets down on one knee, and he's talking to this woman who was just stoic as a concrete wall a minute ago. And he's sharing something, and I'm trying not to pay too much attention, and then she just loses it and starts sobbing. So after the service, I, I went to my friend, the senior pastor, and I said, hey, what was going on? And he goes, Preston, you're never going to believe this. This is the craziest thing ever. And he says, this is the former senior pastor's sister who has been through hell and back through this whole ordeal. And Preston, she's at her wit's end. She's given and she's given and she's given, and people are taking in the season of her life where they need to give, and she's nearly done with it. I didn't know. I didn't know who she was. I said, well, what was the deal with the guy? He goes, this man on the way to church tonight felt the Holy Spirit say, stop at the store and buy a Pez dispenser. I said, what? He goes, yeah. And he thought, that's crazy. I said, well, that's what I thought. And he said, he just felt it even stronger. Son, you pull into a store right now and you buy a Pez dispenser. You don't need to know what to do with it. I'm gonna make it so obvious, but this Pez dispenser ain't gonna belong to you for very long and you'll know who to give it to. He goes and shares that story with this woman and she breaks people over a Pez dispenser. Think about this. It wasn't the Pez dispenser. It was that the God of the universe looked at her and said, Preston, a word isn't gonna be enough for her in this season. I've got to render her speechless with a picture. And so you're gonna deliver the word and I'm gonna use a man 50% older than you to go and buy a Pez dispenser. Some of you are thinking, well, which Pez dispenser did he buy? I don't know. <laughs> Rang her bell, why? Because she realized in that moment, my daddy is a totally obsessed, always watching God. That leads us to the next thing that you need to understand when we answer the question, what kind of daddy is your God? Number four, he's a conveniently intimidating father. I'm gonna have some fun with this one. He's a conveniently intimidating father. 
For those of you who are parents, especially a, a parent of a teenage girl, of which I am in this season, you understand that intimidation is a necessary tool in the parent's toolbox, right? And you don't want to intimidate your children, not at all. You want to intimidate anybody who will cause trouble for your children, right? Okay, I've taken this out for a spin many a times, okay? And if you never have, you need to try it because it's a fun car to drive, all right? You just intimidate them. But I want you to understand something about your daddy, your heavenly father, that he is unbelievably intimidating. Now, here's the problem. The enemy comes to a lot of people, believers and unbelievers, and says, God is so intimidating. You can't go in and talk to him like he was daddy. He's intimidating. Well, he is intimidating, just not to his children. Okay? Now, I'm going to read you one verse of scripture. Most of you know the story of the, the moment in history where the nation of Israel was standing before the Red Sea with the army of Egyptians pinning them in. And it looked like all hope was lost. And we know that the seas parted, Moses was standing there, held up his hands, they crossed the Red Sea, falls in on the Egyptians. We all know that. But Psalm 77 verse 16 gives us a little bit of a different perspective about how this actually went down. And I think it's absolutely nasty, and it helps you understand how conveniently intimidating your daddy is to every one of your enemies. Psalm 77, verse 16 says, When the Red Sea saw you, O God, its waters looked and trembled. The sea quaked to its very depths. Okay, I know it's easy to just read right over a verse like that, but I need you to understand what this means. Think about this. Psalm 77 verse 16 is painting the picture that as the nation of Israel, Moses standing in front of them on the shore of the Red Sea with the army of Egyptians closing in on them quickly, that they were not standing there alone, that the God of the universe, their daddy, was towering over them, behind them, and the waters of the Red Sea were not looking at Moses or at the nation of Israel. They were looking at their daddy, and this is what the seas of the Red Sea said. I am not getting his way. I am out of here. And they parted. They looked at your daddy and said, I am not messing with that guy. This, incidentally, is why I show up to work every day of my life with some swagger. I do. I do. Holy swagger. Not because I call it as such. And especially on those days when I feel like the waters of the Red Sea are trying to scare me and the raging army of enemies trying to pin me in or trying to freak me out, I walk with a little bit more swagger because here's what I know that what is standing in front of me trying to scare me is so much more afraid of the God, my daddy, who stands over me than I will ever be afraid of them. So help me. Don't you just quote, perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. That's great. But you need to visualize, visualize how perfect love casts out all fear. He just stands up. He just stands up and the water says, I am not messing with that guy. That's your daddy. He is conveniently intimidating to anyone who will ever try and cause you trouble on this earth. Here's the last thing. He is a prayer-answering, miracle-working father. That's what I'm talking about. Way to celebrate your daddy a little bit. 
He's a prayer-answering, miracle-working father. Anybody need a miracle? I got good news for you. Your daddy is more than capable. More than capable. Doesn't mean he'll always do it. And we all understand that. But I want to show you in Joshua chapter 10, and if you want some homework this week, you can add Joshua 10 to your homework. Read through the whole chapter. I'll give you the background. Joshua, with the nation of Israel, uh, the five kings come together, the Amorite kings come together, and they come against Gibeon, and Joshua and the Israelites come to fight against the Amorites. And in the first 11 verses, we see that God promises Joshua you're going to be given victory over the Amorites, okay? Now, if God told you specifically, you're going to have victory over all of your enemies, you would walk with a little more swagger, right? But what would you do and how would you walk if what happened for Joshua happened for you? So here they are fighting the Amorites and the Israelites are pounding the Amorites, okay? So much so that the Amorites start to flee. And as the Amorites are fleeing, Here's what your daddy does. He causes a hailstorm to rain down upon anywhere the Amorites are standing. Can you imagine just for a moment being the, the Israelite in the front of the line right before the first Amorite? And all of a sudden, as they're running, a hailstorm comes down and it literally stops right in front of your feet? Now, the ornery among us would probably be tempted to go like this. And here's what would happen. The hill would back up. God was taking out, your daddy was taking out the Amorites with hail. But here's what's awesome about Joshua. Joshua understood what his daddy was like, so much so that he didn't stop with the promise, nor did he stop with the hailstorm. That guy doubles down. And I want to show you what he does after the hailstorm. In the middle of all this, Joshua 10, 12, on the day the Lord gave the Israelites victory over the Amorites, Joshua prayed to the Lord in front of all of the people. Here's another way to say that. This guy had the guts to talk about his daddy and to his daddy in front of everybody. And he prayed this. Let the sun stand still over Gibeon and the moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stayed in its place until the nation of Israel had defeated its enemies. This is one of the greatest pictures of your prayer answering, miracle working daddy. Get the picture. Joshua, knowing what his daddy was capable of and what he was like, sees the hailstorm and goes, I think this is the perfect time to show off what my daddy is like. And he says to the sun, sun, you stand still. Moon, you stop in your place. And his daddy, the God of the universe, as though he was standing behind him, just looked at the sun and it stopped, looked at the moon and it stopped, looked at the earth and stopped its rotation for 12 hours so there'd be 36 hours of sunlight so the Israelites could defeat the Amorites just as Joshua's daddy promised him. Yeah. Yeah, it's so funny, everybody's hesitating like, should I clap? Don't clap at the preaching, clap at your daddy. My word. He looked at one of his sons who had the guts to just go, this is my daddy. This is not about me. This is my daddy. Son, you stand still. Never happened before. Never happened since is what the Bible says. God proved a point of what kind of a daddy he is that day. Not just about his power, 
the sun and the moon stopped and the earth stopped in its place. Why? Because your daddy was proving a point to one of his kids and we should learn the lesson from it. And I get that some of you feel really hopeless right now. I'm sorry, but I promise you, with God, hope is never lost. But your hope needs to grow. And one of the best pictures of hope growing in the life of a godly person is the story of Abraham. Abraham at 75 years old, God comes to him and says, hey, I have great news for you. I know you don't have children, but I'm gonna give you more descendants than there are grains of sand on the face of this earth. How many 75 and up do we have? Okay, not nearly enough, we need a lot more. Okay, let's just ask the 75 and up crowd if God came to you and said, it's baby making time. <laughs> probably come as news, right? When I get 75, probably not gonna be thinking about making babies. And God says, hey Abraham, I know you don't have children, but I promise you this. Son, I'm gonna give you more descendants than there are grains of sand in the earth. And it sounded crazy. But I want you to understand your daddy is crazy. The best kind of crazy. His ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You would hope, if you were Abraham, that God would make good on this promise before your 76th birthday, right? Such was not so. 25 years went down where Abraham had to wait and hope and faith. And at 100 years old, God came true with the promise. But I want to read you one verse that is one of the best pictures of hope growing in the in-between. Romans 4, verse 18. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would in fact become the father of many nations. And why did he keep hoping when there was no reason to hope? The next sentence tells us, for his daddy had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. Abraham's hope grew in 25 years of waiting on a promise. Why? Because Abraham knew what his daddy was like. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.